When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Nitro's Garage for all your automotive needs. Call 646-675-2349. That's 646-675-2349. For all your automotive needs, Nitro's Garage. Ask for Jack. Elm Logistics for all your logistic needs. Call 631 631- Two nine nine three five nine five. That's six three one two nine nine three five nine five. Elm Global Logistics. Pride, performance, and partnerships. energy drink. Yeah, it's that good. Actually, this is the first episode of the Rico Ross broadcast slash podcast called Stay uh, with Mr. Rico Ross. So first off, I want to know, my man, how'd you come up with that name, Stay Frosty? What does that mean to you? 
Say again. <laughs> what does that What does that mean to you? Stay frosty. <laughs> stay frosty means stay cool, man. Keep your head level. That's what it means. It means like you know, don't panic, because when you panic, you can often freeze, and when you freeze in dangerous circumstances, it can be a bad thing. So that's a really important thing for actors to know when they're all in the audition process. Be yourself. Don't let casting directors or directors or producers intimidate you. Was that a pretty safe bet to say? Yeah, I would even go further than say, and say that when you go into a, to an audition, this is your time to shine. And the, the two first words are, are really important. Uh, the, three, the first three words, I should say, this is your oh. time to, sh to shine. So when you get in there, it's your time. You make the most of it. You prepare ahead of time before you walk through those doors. And when you walk through those doors, you got to keep in mind that no matter who's on the other side of that door, it's your time. I remember one audition I went in. I was I had just got out of college and I was going on this audition and they called me in a number of times and finally I was gonna meet um the, the big the big heads uh, in Hollywood. And I went inside there and inside the uh, lobby and I'm waiting. And who do I see waiting in there also? I see uh, a young, then, a then young uh, Lawrence Fishburne. And, they had, and then someone told me, yeah, they flew him in from Chicago for this job. And I remember this role was a, a role where it was, it was a gang leader, but he was the leader of gang leaders. So this guy was supposed to really have a certain amount of confidence, a certain kind of presence. And I walked in there and I saw and I saw Lawrence and Lawrence had, hadn't done a whole lot at that time, but he had done uh, the army movie, which I can't think of the name of right now. And he had done that very young. And I re remember seeing him in that and he was amazing in it. So I walk in there and I see him in the lobby and I hear that they flew him in from Chicago. And I thought, oh, wow, he, we're going up for the same part. Then I walk into the room and there's like a dozen different execs in there. And as I walk in there, the first exec, I shake his hand. He goes, this is the, this is the producer, such and such. The next guy, I shake his hand. This is, this is writer, such and such. The next guy, this is assistant producer. And I felt myself getting smaller and smaller with each handshake. And then something in the back of my mind told me, you can't, you can't keep shaking these guys' hands because all of a sudden you're becoming small and you got to be the man in here. You're the man in here. They're not the man. You're the man in here. And so I stopped shaking the rest of the guy's head and I started nodding my head to them and getting back to where I needed to be as an actor. And by the time we got to the last one, I was just going like, so. <laughs> and so. And so I do this audition and I knew I had him. Cause as soon as I finished the audition, everybody was quiet for about three seconds. And then they started commenting saying, I walked out of that audition and uh, I remember thinking, I don't know what they, what, who else they're seeing, but I know that I did what I was supposed to do. And that's your job as an actor. You, you, can, you only have so much control over the situation. And the one thing that you can control is what you do. So I walked in that room and I remember controlling what I could control. And I walked out and uh, before I could even get home, I got a phone call saying, yeah, you, you booked the job. Tell us your story, man. I mean, was there anybody in your, your family or any of your relatives in the in show business or the film industry? I mean, how did you actually get a knack for the film industry? How, how is that something that you knew? In what age did you know you wanted? Let, let me put it this way. I, I come from a very large family. I have um, 
I have five brothers and I also have five sisters. So there are 11 of us, six boys, five girls. Uh, my parents were, uh, were not wealthy. Uh, we were a low income family. And uh, of course, with that many kids, you probably are going to be a low income family. <laughs> but I remember um, they, they stressed education and uh, my parents also stressed uh, business. They wanted us to be a professional, no matter what it was. Um, so most of my family went into uh, business. Uh, some went into um, to being teachers, but I kind of um, I got this thing for the arts because when I was when I was 13 years old, I, I uh, my parents divorced and I, I moved to Florida, and I moved to a school uh, to the south. And I I'm from Chicago, and I, I I didn't know a whole lot about the south, but I remember thinking that um I didn't really want to move to the south. And I get to the south, and I get I get told that I'm going to go to a, a high school called uh, plantation. <laughs> so I, I go to this high school and um, the high school would have us come in the afternoon and they had another class, another uh, student body that would come in the morning. And what would happen was there was another school being built that we were going to go to. So we were sharing this on the same campus. And as a kind of um, energetic, uh, mischievous young man, I I would try and get into the school. Yeah, I tried to get into school and they wouldn't allow me. And this teacher saw me and she knew that what I was doing and she just told me, no, you, you can't come in. Then a little girl came up and she says, oh, I'm sorry, I left my book in there. Can I go in and get my book? And she let her in. And so I, uh, being a, a smart little kid, played the race card on her. And I said, oh, you let her go in, but you won't let me go in. And tried to make her feel guilty, tried to play the guilt card on her. But, you know, she knew that I was acting. She could see it. And I had worked myself up so much that I had tears going down my face. And she says, no, you know, I'm not going to allow you in this room. I know that you come in later. And, uh, but what I will do is I'll allow you to be in my play. And I said, I'm not going to be in your place. She goes, yes, you are. I go, no, I'm not. She goes, yes, you are. And then I confessed to her. I said, I, um, I'm not comfortable reading out aloud. She says, well, we do this thing called improv. So when you go in, you just can, can you play a, could you play a frog? Could you play a, an animal, a bear? I went, yeah. She says, can you be at, um, in, in, at the cafeteria tomorrow at, at this time? I said, yes. And then she says, okay, well, you're doing my play. And she was right. I ended up doing her play and I played a boxer. My father, uh, one of the many things that he did when he was uh, in Chicago was he was a golden glove, glove boxer. So all of, all of us boys, we knew how to box. So playing a boxer was really easy for me, even at 13 years old. Uh, the next year she uh, had a play and I did that play. And then the, the, the following year, she did a play where I was one of the leads in the play, and it was really uh, successful for the school. And uh, once I got into college, after a couple of years of college, I decided that I had to choose my my uh, my course of, of study, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I spoke with a counselor, and he said, well, listen, what are you good at? What do you like doing? And, and can you make a living doing it? I said, well, uh, I think I'm good at uh, acting because uh, we got amazing reviews. I said, I like doing it. So he goes, well, why don't you do that? Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> and that's how I became an actor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I think that teacher, that teacher knew, she knew that this kid had a lot of energy. She knew that he, 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 he was smart enough and clever enough to be a good actor. But she was... 
He wasn't fooling her, but she also thought he had skills and she managed to put those skills and direct them into the right direction. So I, uh, I thank Miss Cook for that because she was the beginning of my uh, acting career. Okay. So how long the time you started on stage, that was your first stage experience, first acting experience, until you did your first professional? Well, interesting th story there is um, I... I did. I became an actor, and after uh, a couple of years, I felt like uh, I really wasn't as good as I wanted to be. And so, a professor at my university says, "Well, why don't you consider going to grad school?" And I applied for uh, UCLA, which was my first choice. And I was going to apply for other universities, but I had missed the date. So basically, I basically had one choice, and that was UCLA. I got a letter from them saying, uh, we'd love to have you audition, but you, we'd prefer that you fly out from Florida to audition in person because you'd have a better chance of, uh, of, of getting a, a position. And so I scratched up enough money to fly out to uh, California. I auditioned. I got back and I waited. They said, you'd, you'd hear an answer in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks passed. I did not hear an answer. A couple more days passed. I did not hear an answer. And I called them up and they says, oh, yes, uh, we sent it out uh, yesterday. You've been accepted and um, you've got a full ride. Uh, so this was, uh, they offered me, instead of a scholarship, they offered me a fellowship where they would actually pay me to go to school if I kept the 3.0 uh, GPA. So I, um, I, that was the happiest day in my life at that time. I remember I could not believe it. And I, I just hoped that uh, they didn't make a mistake. And, and if they did make a mistake, mistake that they didn't discover it until after I had actually graduated. So I get out there and I, uh, I go through the program. It was a two-year program at UCLA. And I, I, I tell you, I, I am so indebted to UCLA. I feel like I should put a, a tattoo on, on my body because they gave me an opportunity, one, to get out of uh, Florida and two, to start my career. By the end of the second uh, year, uh, I started auditioning and my first role was uh, I was uh, a regular on Young and the Restless. And uh, my second role, my second big role was Hill Street Blues. And Hill Street Blues, I um, had a recurring role on that, playing a gang member. And again, as I said, I'm from Chicago. I grew up with gang members. I could play those guys like the, you know, I knew them like the back of my hand. So it wasn't a difficult thing to do. And so I, I did a, a good job at it. I remember <laughs> I did three episodes, but like after the second episode, I bumped into this guy who had a big beard and he had on a lumberjack uh, jacket. And he goes, I, I was looking at the, some footage last night and you are really good. You're a young actor, but you're really good. And I, I almost played the actor kind of uh, attitude like, oh, thank you, you know, but I, was, I wasn't as cocky as I, as I wanted to be and, and as I could have been. But I was, I was, uh, I was um, very happy that he gave me the compliment. And I later found out that he was the the guy who, who who created Hill Street Blues. So I'm glad I didn't make a complete ass of myself. But uh, we did three. I did three episodes of it. it. That year, it won more Emmys than it had ever won before, and that was really um, the, the start of of my career uh, as far as uh, as a leading man. You actually did a uh, early, early on in your career, man. You worked with the legend in the business, Lee Marvin. How was that experience? 
Wow, uh, that's a that's a, yeah uh, that 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 touches me because I uh, worked with Lee Marvin on uh, the Dirty Dozen Two, and I had seen you know movies of him when I was growing up, and to actually work with him side by side, that was such a that was such a, an experience for me. And as a young actor, I'm playing this 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 role this character, and uh, and and I'm working I'm working at, side by side with Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin and I became really good friends and he had a daughter that would also was also out helping out she was visiting and her and I became really good friends and I remember after the the uh, movie was over with I would receive a Christmas card from Lee Marvin's wife for like the next three years uh, and I just I, he was he was the best thing that could have happened to me at that time because he there was one scene where I had a shot I was a, a sniper in this in this movie and lee marvin comes to get me out of jail because i'm so good and to offer me uh, immunity if i would come and do this mission and i remember i'm living in england right and i had when i first moved to england i i moved there as a to study shakespeare and by the time i got this job i had been working in england as an englishman illegally as an englishman uh doing english roles and I had just uh, booked this job and I had to switch over and start thinking American. So we were doing this one scene where Lee Marvin comes to the prison and he asks me, where did I learn to shoot? And I said, at, uh, at home, you know, in the streets, basically what I told him. But instead of saying home, I was saying home. I was saying it with an English accent. And I remember the director kept saying, cut something's not working we were shooting this scene over and over and the reason it wasn't working is because i was actually pronouncing home uh, as an englishman <laughs> so so we get on set uh later on and we have this big scene this kind of climatic scene where i got i got hitler in my in my cross pen and i i could shoot i could take out hitler but my assignment was to take out his right hand man and so Lee Marvin and I get into this argument while I've got him in my sights, while, while I've got Hitler in my sights, whether or not I should shoot Hitler. And I remember we did the first take of this, this, this scene, and it was, a, it was a long take. And I'm acting my butt off, and I'm doing the scene, and I'm killing it, and we cut, and Lee Marvin asked the director to give him a minute, and he pulls me over to the side, and he says, listen, that was great, and and I, I I really felt that you were in the scene. But he says this is a long shot. We're going to do a number of takes of this long shot. Then we're going to move in and do a, a mid shot. And we're going to do a number of takes of that. And by the time we get to your close up, whatever you're using, it's going to be spent. So he he kind of coached me. He says, "Don't use it now. Whatever you're using is working. Just do go through the scene, through the numbers. Just treat it like it's the numbers." It's a long shot, they're not that close upon you, and it'll work out fine. When we get our mid shot, you can start turning it on a little bit. But that, when you get your, your close up, that's when I want to see what you just did. And you can't repeat that if you start doing it now. And uh, that was a bit of advice from, from a veteran actor that, you know, that I wouldn't, would never have known this because I, I grew up working more on stage at that point. And so all of a sudden, I'm working on film, not even television, but film. And, um, it was it was him schooling me at that point, and I I, I always appreciated that. 
So your very first film was a film called Scarred. Do you remember anything about that film whatsoever? Your very first time on set. I don't remember much about Scarred. I don't. And as a matter of fact, if I look at some of these movies, uh, the smaller parts, I don't even remember much about them at all. You know, I, I would have to look at the movie to kind of uh, remember it. Because one of the things um, my acting coach said at UCLA, he says, listen, your job is to come, come, to, come to the set prepared. Do your thing. And this, he, this, he applied the same concept to auditions. Do your thing. And when you walk out, you let the chips fall where they may. He says, because that's out of your control. You do what you can when you walk in there. And I got into a habit of going on auditions, doing my thing, walking out, putting that whole experience behind me because I did not want to be that actor that's sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. And when it doesn't ring, you become depressed and bitter. And, you know, you, if you focus on, on, on that, that will tear you down as an artist and as an actor very quickly. So I got into the habit of once, once I do the job, once the job is cut, it's, it, there's a cut and there's a wrap and we're out of here, my focus then shifts completely away from that job and on to the next possible job. I think a lot of times talent in the industry stop and reminisce about what they did and they get caught up in the moment. And that's the way that they kind of stay stagnant until the next gig or whatever, whatever that gig might be. I think that's a really sound advice that your acting coach gave you that advice, man. Just keep doing what you do, get out there and do it and just go through it. Don't think about it, just keep moving. Yeah, that's really the best advice. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I find it worked for me because um, in Hollywood, I, I meet a lot of actors and a lot of actors are bitter. Uh, and they're bitter because of, uh, they come out here from wherever they have these big dreams of being a, a, an actor or a star very quickly. And what, what you find happens is that it happens quickly for a very small amount of people. Everybody else, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle, man. It's, it's a constant struggle. And it can wear you down. And part of the problem with being an actor in Hollywood is that when you're first starting off, your bills are coming every month, but the jobs aren't coming every month. So you have to do something just to pay the bills. And a lot of actors work as waiters or uh, other jobs, but there are always jobs where there's a certain amount of flexibility. And if they get a job where someone wants to give them uh, um, um, a better position, very often they won't take it because that better position means more responsibility. And I can't walk away for an audition as quickly as I can if I kept down low. And so what you find a lot of actors doing is that they just um, do jobs that really are kind of beneath them. And before you know it, there's five years that have passed by, you're still doing that job. And now you, you're thinking about a family or something like that, or you want to buy a house and you're still doing these jobs that really don't pay that much. And so it can be, it can be a very bitter experience. Uh, so for me, um, yeah, I, I tried to, to do what I can to kind of like keep my, my, my energy up. Uh, keep myself, uh, my mind in a positive position. And so, yeah, so when I would go into a job, if I, once I did my job or once I did my audition, that's it, that's the end of that. And now we'll move on to the next thing. And, uh, and hopefully uh, that advice will help somebody else. So I know you went over to London, England for a couple of years, man. You actually lived in London. Um, 
Is that something you purposely did? Did you want to learn like their style of acting compared to ours? Or how did you end up in, in England over there for the time you were there? Good question. So as I told you, uh, my first big job was uh, Hill Street Blues, where I, where I actually got to play a lead role. And then after that happened, um, every job for the, for, for the next year seemed to me to be the same character with a different name. So I'm playing all of these, these uh, gang members, right? And um, as I'm playing these gang members, I'm thinking I'm happy to be working, but at the same time, I had just finished grad school at UCLA. I'm walking around with a master's degree and all I'm getting cast as are gang members. And I understood it because being um, 6'3 and athletic, you know, that's a, an easy, easy um, role for me to, to be cast in. But at the same time, I felt like I had more to offer. So I went to one of my professors uh, at UCLA and I, I, I confided in, in him and in saying that, I, you know, I really feel like I, I'm locked into this kind of stereotype of playing the same role and I got more to offer than this. And his suggestion was, that I auditioned for the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, i.e. Uh, Lambda. It's a, a school, a Shakespearean school in London. And he says, this would be good for you for two reasons. It'll, it'll give you something to come back with that you'll, you'll have in your pocket that's different from all the other actors. But also as a young man, it'll be a good experience for you as a person. And you know, as, a, as an actor, your experiences as an individual has a lot to do with the, the characters you create, uh, the perspectives that you can pull from. So I auditioned, got accepted into this, this, uh, this school into Lambda in London. I went there. The, as soon as we got there, the Americans that were there, they uh, told them, uh, they asked us to acquire a British accent because they wanted us to be more time focusing on character and not so much time focusing on accent. So as an actor and putting in that environment, like a sponge, I just soaked it all up. And by the time the course was over, it was only a one-year course. I, my English was better than most of the Londoners. When the course finished, all of the London, the English people were going on auditions, getting agents and going on auditions and starting to work. And I was just hanging out thinking, should I go back to the States right now? Or should I stay here and see if I can actually pull this off in front of an English uh, audience? So I decided to stay there and pull it off. But I, the first thing I ran into was that I was an American and it's very difficult for Americans to get a work. And so an artist often, in, in, when, when needed, I uh, created my own, um, the equivalent of social security number. And, and I put on my best British accent and I start walking into auditions as a British, as a British actor and started working as a British actor. Now, I don't know if you can get away with that now with all the computers, but I worked for four years as a, as a British actor in London and I was able to pull it off and do Shakespeare in front of an English audience and, and a lot of other uh, English televisions as, Engl as an Englishman. And it wasn't until after four years that I managed to get my, uh, my, my permanent visa. And so I ended up staying a total of 13 years. And I did, you know, Doctor Who over there, which is a huge series that's been going on for generations. I did Aliens there, Mission Impossible there, Dirty Dozen, I did that there. A lot of huge uh, movies I did there. And then I would fly back to LA for pilot season. 
as soon as it gets slow in pilot season, I would definitely back to London. Yeah, one of the things we're going to be doing with this uh, this show is tracing your filmography and your lineage, like where you started to where you are now. So when you were in London, man, that's when you worked, I guess, with um, Charles Bronson on Death Wish Three. How, how did that come? How did that come about? Yes, uh, when I was working with Charles, when we shot, we shot, um, we shot Death Wish Three uh, in London and in New York, uh, and I I was working with him and. Uh, he was going through a really difficult time right then. I think his wife uh, uh, was terribly uh, sick or had just passed away. I can't remember which, but it was right around that time. And um, I remember uh, he had invited me into his, his trailer and we were just talking about the role because in the movie, you know, we are like arch enemies and, and he just wanted to feel, wanted me to feel secure that, you know, when we're being physical and whatnot, this is just professional and we, he's going to go at it like, you know, like, like he's really angry at me and then he, he wants me to feel the, uh, have the license to go at him the same way. And so we're talking about this. And then I, I had heard that he, um, that his wife was going through some, some really difficult times. And I um, brought it up to him and I could see the weight that he was carrying uh, uh, concerning his wife's health. And um, he really didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and, and instantly, uh, you know, I could see that this was a, this was a serious situation and, and, that, um, and that he loved her very much. So we're shooting the film, and um, from that point on, we just we just did our thing. We were arch enemies in the film, so I, um, you know, he knew that when when I when I didn't want to hang out with him, and he didn't want to hang out with me, that it was professional reasons because we're not going to be friends offset off screen because we're not friends on screen. And as an as an actor, and also as an actor who often use uses method acting uh, as part of my training and my preparation, if I am a friend with someone on set I try and find things about them that I enjoy and and try and find things that can make us more of a friend offset so that when we get on set there's a there's a there's a chemistry there that is real and if we are arch enemies then I I often try not to be such a friendly person uh with that person until after uh we wrap and so we kind of got that straight out and uh he kind of explained that that he works the same way and so it was all good. But we had, I mean, that, that film was a, a very interesting shoot because I remember when we were in New York, we went into a part of New York to shoot on location in the streets. And we were in uh, an area that had gangs, real gang members. And some of them came up and saw what we were doing and saw us, us acting as gang members and wanted to be in the film. And of course, you can't just cast somebody just on the spot like that when you've already got people who are playing those roles. And they were not happy about it. They were also not happy about the fact that we're shooting in their, in their hood and we didn't ask permission. And so things got a little uh, heated. And um, at, su at some point, it got so bad that we had to get on the, on the coach, all of us had to get on the coach and, and change locations because they started throwing rocks at the coach. Uh, it was a crazy, crazy experience. But when you're working in on location, you you don't have control of everything. So it was that was a, a weird experience. And the other thing that happened in particular that I remember about that shoot was um we went back to London and we shot an, a scene and it was supposed to be in New York, but they had built this building 
that looked very similar to the building we were in in New York. And this building, they were going to set on fire. So we, they set the, the, the building on fire. And the idea was the stuntman who was playing me, who was going to get thrown over, because I get thrown over the building, uh, over, over the edge of the, uh, the, the building by Charles Bronston. Um, they wanted him to fall over on these boxes, but the building was going to be on fire. And what happens is he runs up there and he does the stunt one time and it's fine. He comes down, he goes to do the stunt again, but, but the director, Michael Winter, says, listen, we're going to put more fire here on this one and really see if we can make it uh, a little more exciting. And he did it a second time and that was fine. And then he goes on the third time, we're going to really light this building up now. We've, I think we've got the shot, but let's just really light it up and see if we can make it more exciting. He gets up there and he goes to jump and he can't see where the boxes are. So he decides, I, I don't know where it is. I'm not just going to jump. He decides, I'm going to go back and abort, abort this stunt. But he tries to go back downstairs and the building's so on fire that he can't get back downstairs. So then he runs back upstairs and the only way out now is to jump. But now he can't see anything about where the boxes were. But he has no choice. The stuntman's name was Rocky, and he was a famous stuntman in London at the time. And he, wow. he ended up jumping where he thought the boxes were. He hit half the boxes, and half of the boxes he missed broke his back. And that was, uh, you know, a, a horrible thing to happen to a stuntman because you break your back as a stuntman. That pretty much is a, is a, is a life-ending, uh, career-ending uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Well, we are actually at the end of episode one with Stay Frosty with your host, Rico Ross. <laughs> episode two, really soon, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we have a lot of great content we're going to be bringing to you. And we really appreciate your time today, Rico. And uh, we look forward to uh, episode two, my man. All right, brother. Nice talking to you. And remember, as always, stay frosty. You got it, my man. Peace out.